Well, thanks for joining us today. We're going to take a look at and discuss a little bit about the idea of stress and how stress disrupts our homeostasis, but more importantly, how we can go about using our responses to stress and our interpretation of stress to our benefit. We usually think about stress as being a negative, something we want to try to avoid. But the problem is that the way in which our brain is set up is that we can't really differentiate whether or not we have some sort of physical or physiological stress happening, or if it's some sort of cognitive stress that is affecting our ability to uh, perform, our ability to have optimal performance, our ability to have homeostasis. So we're going to take a look at how we can go about responding to various types of stresses and how we can utilize stress to our advantage in what's referred to as arousal. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. So when we start looking at the idea of stress, what we have to remember is that the interpretation of stress, the ability to figure out whether or not we're under stress or not, is based on how we have this interaction taking place within our brain, in particular within distinct areas of the brain. The most important of these areas is within the region of the brain responsible for our emotional responses and our endocrine responses to stress. And so we have this kind of interplay taking place between our limbic system, in particular the hippocampus and the amygdala bodies, along with some of the other limbical structures, and the hypothalamus pituitary, what's sometimes referred to as the hypophysius, linked into areas of our frontal cortex, our frontal lobe within our brain. And what these areas are doing is that they're trying to interpret signals of stress that we happen to have. And the problem with this interplay is that we can't determine whether or not we're getting stresses from outside the body, whether we're getting stresses from inside the body, or whether we're getting stresses that we're thinking about having. That would be what's sometimes referred to as a cognitive or an imaginary stress. And we can't determine where that stress happens to be starting at. But it doesn't matter in terms of our physiology. What the physiology is going to do is that the physiology is going to look at what do I need to do in order to survive the stress? And this is where we look at what is referred to in physiological responses as an alarm response. The alarm response is the first stage in the neuroendocrine response to stress and to injury and to immune functions, where we go from alarm to resistance to exhaustion. And in that sequence of events, we increase the amount of responsiveness that we have within the body that will eventually lead to some sort of distress or disease setting in. And so when we think about getting like sick or getting uh, ill, sickness and illness, even though we tend to think about it in terms of our being infected, it's not really about being infected. It's about the end result of the neuroendocrine stress responses to our body not being at optimal performance, at homeostasis. That eventually leads to so much tissue breakdown that the body is in a constant state of distress and disrepair 
and dysfunction, D-Y-S-F-U-N-C-T-I-O-N, that it can't regulate itself regularly. And that's where we start having the issues of illness. And it all starts with this alarm response. The alarm response has positives and negatives to it. We want to be able to be alert to any type of things that might be dangerous to us. And that alertness to danger is important for survivability. It's a survival instinct that we're looking at here in terms of this alarm response. And so what ends up happening is is that we have this alarm response. This alarm response is a sense of trigger. And once again, we can't figure out where where that stress is coming from. But what it does is it gears in a positive feedback loop. A positive feedback loop that will constantly be exaggerating more and more and more and more and more response. And it's exaggerating more response. It's causing causing amplification of the responses that we have within the body in an attempt to get rid of the stress. When we have this taking place, what ends up happening is that the hypothalamus, the limbic system, the hippocampus and the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex are all in constant communication with each other. And what they're doing is that they're setting up a nervous system and an endocrine response to allow us to survive a stressful event. It doesn't care what happens long term. This is the whole issue with alarm phase causing poor performance if I'm stuck in alarm phase. It doesn't care about long term ramifications. It doesn't care about what happens to me two hours from now, three hours from now, two days from now, three days from now, three weeks from now. It simply cares about what's happening within that immediate response to feeling stressed. In this, what we'll see is we'll see a spike in our stress hormones, in particular epinephrine, a spike in our excitatory neurotransmitters, in particular norepinephrine, dopamine, and glutamate. And what this does is this causes increased activity within the body. If we think about this, this is sometimes referred to as our fight or flight response. And in this fight or flight response, a couple of things happen within our state of alertness. We become alert to everything. We become alert to everything because everything becomes an additional threat to us. It becomes an additional threat to us to the point that we don't know what the initial threat happened to be anymore. All we know is that there's a threat. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that any bodily response is geared up in such a way as to alleviate or eliminate the stress. And so what we end up having is that within our cerebral cortex, we end up having an increase of attentiveness, but a decrease in focus. This is where everything becomes shiny objects to us. It, something that should not be drawing our attention draws our attention. And we cannot figure out, is it something I should be paying attention to, or is it something that I can tune out? And so we have very high attentiveness, but very poor focus. That high attentiveness and low focus, what that does is that reduces our ability to recall and recollect what we should be doing and what we should know how to do. If this happens to be us taking a test, this is where we get so panicky from the stress of the test that we forget everything we studied. For people who are athletes or people who are doing athletic things, this is where you have the quote-unquote yips come into play, where instead of being able to correctly throw the baseball, the baseball gets thrown 10 feet over the person's head, where instead of being able to swing smoothly and correctly, your swing looks like you're back in t-ball, Little League. For the golfer, this is where the golfer has the constant slice or the constant shank, or they constantly top it. 
regardless of what they're trying to do. It feels like they can't get out of their way in this, in this situation. And we have this stress, and the problem is, is that we can't get rid of that stress until we figure out what is causing the stress response to be initiated. And we can't figure that out in the minute. And what ends up happening is that during this time, we are very active and excessively reflexive to everything surrounding us. And that's because we have changes in the way in which we activate all the tissues of the body. And that activation of the various tissues of the body is going to cause increases in heart rate, increases in respiration rate, increases in muscle recruitment, but decreases in muscle coordination. And so, like I said, if we're trying to play a sport, this is where we start looking like we're just learning the sport. And in some cases, for professional athletes, we start having tipping taking place where we, for someone that is not under excessive amounts of stress, where they're in the correct level of arousal, they'll start noticing that we have some sort of predisposed movement that's going to lead to the movement that we intend to do within our athletic event. So we might hear, like if we're watching uh, a baseball game, or if we happen to be playing a baseball game, we might see or hear about the pitcher tipping the pitch that they're going to throw. And that's because they're reverting back to the behavior that they exhibit while learning the motion because of the level of stress that they have. What they're trying to do is they're trying to compensate for having poor motor coordination by reverting back to behavioral activity that is encompassing of the learning of the behavior as opposed to the execution of the behavior. And what this allows for is it allows for me to be able to do what I need to do under the stressful situation, even though my performance is being impaired. That impairment, we can see if we look at with the student taking the test, where under any other circumstance, if they're out in the hallway of the classroom before the test, or if this is the evening before and they're talking with their parents or their friends or their classmates, and we simply just ask some simple review questions, they know everything. They can answer everything, can talk about everything. But there's something about the testing environment that causes them undue stress. It's an internalized sense of needing to be perfect. And that internalized sense of needing to be perfect raises the level of stress on the body. And it doesn't matter where that stress is coming from, whether it's that internal drive to be perfect or it's the external stress of the environment that I'm finding myself in, such as in the athletic arena, that causes this physiological responses to take place. The physiological responses that are taking place are linked hand in hand with a nervous system that is referred to as the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is our quote-unquote fight or flight. That fight or flight response is what we see when we see responses to the environment, responses to stress that triggers excessive levels of the stress hormones, epinephrine in particular. When we have these events, when we have the, this excessive level of stress or this interpretation of excessive level of stress, we have to somehow be able to get back to being able to, quote unquote, function 
in a normal condition or normal situation. And there are various types of techniques that are described that are meant to try to bring back the level of response we have to a given stress so that we're able to perform optimally. And that's the key here. Performance needs to be optimal. And when we're talking about performance being optimal, what we're really talking about is we're talking about physiologically homeostasis. Because when I'm at homeostasis, the body's able to do what I need the body to do in every type of situation and in various types of situations. Which means that if I am pitching in a playoff game, I'm able to throw my fastball or my slider or my curveball in the correct plane so as to induce either a strikeout or a ground out. Or if I'm playing infield, I'm able to correctly position my body in such a way so that I am able to field the ball correctly, turn and throw and get the person out at whatever bag I'm trying to get the person out at. Or if I am playing soccer, I'm able to uh, correctly execute the penalty kick at the end of the game because that is when the highest amount of stress is typically felt by the individuals. Now, this ability to monitor and maintain stress goes hand in hand with our ability to metabolize correctly. And part of that metabolizing correctly deals with issues surrounding metabolism and fatigue, where if I'm doing things for longer periods of time, I start to develop metabolite signals and metabolites in blood circulation and in interstitial circulation, circulation within the fluids of the body, that indicates excessive amounts of metabolisms taking place. And whenever I have excessive amounts of metabolism taking place, I usually get a couple of metabolites, one in particular adenosine, that is a signal for fatigue that kind of disrupts the way in which neurons are supposed to be functioning. And when I get this disruption of the way in which neurons are functioning in a stressful situation, I get even worse coordination of signals coming from the neurons heading out to control my body or within my nervous system controlling other neurons. And when I have fatigue plus stress, I end up having even worse response. And when I have worse response, I end up having poor performance. And when I have poor performance, I will have some sort of issue established. And when we're talking about this issue being established, what we're really talking about is either as a student, poor test performance, or as a performer, poor performance performance. And I know it's a double phrase there. But when we're talking about poor, poor, poor performance performance, this could be the uh, actor or actress forgetting their lines or missing their cue. This could be the uh, athlete making an error at a key point in the game, quarterback throwing a, a key interception, running back missing a, a block leading to a sack. All because of the combination of stress plus fatigue. And so what we want to try to do is we want to try to somehow establish a way by which we can control how our body is able to respond to that stress. And this is where we have a kind of duality taking place. And the duality that's taking place 
in there is that while we have a stress response, this response that causes the positive feedback that leads to amplification of responses in an attempt to get rid of the stress as quickly as possible, we also have a relaxation response. The relaxation response does the exact opposite of the stress response. In the relaxation response, what we're looking at is we're looking at a reversal of the alarm phase. Whereas we're able to either physically, cognitively, or uh, physiologically remove the stressor, we start blocking the alarm response, the response of increased epinephrine, increased norepinephrine, increase of uh, dopamine, increase of catecholamines, increase of uh, glutamate within the nervous system. All of those changes lead to other changes, particularly changes within the way in which the prefrontal cortex, the limbic system, and and the hypothalamus are cross-communicating with each other in terms of what type of response should be mounted. When we have this taking place, what ends up happening is that our state of arousal starts to lower. As the state of arousal starts to lower, we start seeing a swing in hippocampus and amygdala activity within the limbic system. And what this does is this changes my focus. The change in focus does not change my attentiveness, which means I'm still able to attend to everything I need to attend to, all the stuff that's in the environment, all the stimulus that's out there. But what it does is it changes how well I am able to focus on what I need to focus on. When I'm able to change my attentiveness and my focus, I'm able to limit the stimulus that I'm paying attention to. If I'm able to limit the stimulus I'm paying attention to, my level of stress continues to drop. Within the brain, we start seeing changes in neurotransmitter activity. We start seeing our inhibitory neurotransmitters start to increase, serotonin, GABA in particular. As serotonin and GABA start to increase, We start seeing lower and lower, lower general activity within the cerebral cortex, which means that we're going to start seeing a reduction in our reactivities, our responsiveness to the stresses, allowing us to become relaxed. Now there's a problem with this. Just like having too much arousal can lead to poor performance, too little arousal can also lead to poor performance. If I become too relaxed, I have too much inhibition taking place within the cerebral cortex. And if I have too much inhibition taking place within the cerebral cortex, I don't get the correct activation pathways occurring. And without having the correct activation pathways occurring, I don't have the correct timing necessary in order to perform and execute the key movements that I need in order to perform correctly, say, athletically, or work at an appropriate pace in order to complete a test assessment in the correct amount of time, or make sure that if I am, say, performing in, in a play or in a movie or in a television show, being on my cue at the correct time and responding to the cued lines at the correct pace and with the correct intensity. Now for the actor actress, it's okay because typically we have retakes. 
shoot two, shoot three, shoot four, shoot five for myself recording this. Take one, take two, take three, take four. Record, cut, delete, re-record, -re recut, re-delete. We have a chance to make up for missing out on those cues because of arousal issues. Whether it's because I have too much inhibition taking place or too much, too much excitation taking place. And so when we're looking at this idea of stress, what we're really attempting to do in our response to stress, to borrow a quote from Happy Gilmore, is we're trying to find our happy place. We're trying to find the place that allows us to perform but doesn't get us angry. That allows us to perform, allows us to be excited, allows us to activate but not to overactivate. When we have this balance point between alarm response and relaxation response, when we have that balance point, we're able to optimally perform. If I cannot control that, I cannot optimally perform. And that's the key here. Cannot optimally perform. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we have optimal performance. It's the optimal performance that's going to dictate whether or not I'm balancing relaxation and arousal correctly. So how can I go about balancing relaxation and alarm? What is going to be the key in that balance point? The key between balancing of alarm and relaxation is about understanding what is stress, what is stressful, and what's the difference between the two. A stress is simply anything that can possibly cause a disruption to homeostasis. Things that are stressful will induce stresses. We're able to control stressfulness by understanding what is and what is not a stress. Part of this is a learned response, which means that the more often I encounter a stressful event, the less likely I am to to indicate within that event one thing or another being a stress. There's an adage that was given to me at one point in time in my academic career that if we want to indicate one thing about how the body functions and what is and how the body is able to maintain homeostasis, it boils down to this. It's what does the hypothalamus sense as being a stress? The more I encounter different types of situations and possible stresses, the less likely I am to appreciate that thing as being a stress because I've encountered it before, I've gone through my alarm response to survive that stress, I've adapted in such a way so that that stress is no longer seen as a stress, which means I now have a new homeostasis for that specific situation. And this is where we have to understand a little about homeostasis. If we go and look at the book definition of homeostasis, it's talking about a stable environment, usually discussed as a stable internal environment. But that stability is not static, it's dynamic. And every situation that we have encountered is going to, is going to establish a new and different homeostasis for that, spe for that specific situation. And that's because we're going to adapt based off of a principle known as specific adaptations to impose demands, sometimes referred to as the said principle. Now, if you talk to my exercise physiology friends, 
and Maxwell Science Friends, they'll talk about said principle as relates to adaptation in exercise. But that same principle is going to be the same responsiveness that we see within the body to every stressful event that we see, not just in response to our body adapting to exercise. It's going to be our body's ability to adapt to everything that we encounter. And we'll adapt and change based off of all of the various types of stresses that we've encountered. And so the more often I get exposed to different types of stresses, the less likely I am to see those various types of stresses as being stresses. Even if I get stuck in the same stressful event, I may not see what's in that stressful event as being a stress, which means I'll be able to stay out of full-blown alarm and not need to be in full-blown relaxation in order to be able to optimally perform. And that's the key here. The key here is to be able to balance that alarm and that relaxation in order to optimally perform. And we only learn that through trial and error, our ability to work our way through various stresses and various stressful events and survive the various stressful and stresses within the stressful event. So how can I go about doing that? This is where we have to learn how to internalize the stresses and internalize relaxation mechanisms to reduce our sensing of a stress within a stressful event. This can be simple breathing techniques, such as taking deep breaths and counting backwards from 10 to 0 as you're taking deep and relaxing breaths. This could be visualization techniques where you place yourself, cognitively place yourselves into a stressful event and work out how would you go about responding to that stressful event. This could be practice. One of the things that a lot of soldiers do in terms of being able to establish a responsiveness to the stress of war is to practice war. That's part of what the training that is done during basic training is meant to do. That's what the war games that soldiers do before deployment do. It's meant to establish the stressful event of war with all of the stresses within war and allow you to develop the internalized mechanisms, sometimes for just coping mechanisms, to work your way through the stressful event in such a way so as to be aroused but not aroused to the point of having an alarm response. This could be the athlete working in an environment that is excessively stressful while trying to hone specific skills that they seem to lack in during stressful events. Sometimes we may not want to think about it based off of our current cognitive thinking about uh, stress being placed on individuals through verbal assaults, but this could be something where within practice having teammates and onlookers do some sort of jeering, some sort of heckling of athletes in order to increase the cognitive state or associating some sort of physical or cognitive punishment or reward for making or missing. The problem is, is that even in all of these practice situations, we cannot establish the same governing guidelines that we see 
in the real situations. But what it does is that it establishes a cognitive set, a set within the brain as to how can I still execute whatever I need to execute, even given the stakes that happen to be there. For the student, this could be doing the quote-unquote practice testing, but practice testing in conditions that are very similar to practice to testing situations that you would see yourselves in. It's not about taking practice tests in, say, your bedroom, but instead taking practice tests in, say, the library where it is ex- exceedingly quiet where there is no external uh, talking, or if there is external talking, it's very muted. But people are up walking around making environmental noise that's not verbal environmental noise. Because you know that in the test situation, you're going to have people up and about within the classroom. You'll have students who get done before you do. You'll have proctors walking around the room. All of those various types of environmental stimuli that can act as what is sometimes referred to as distractors. But what the distractors really are is nothing more than a stress. It's, the, it's a stress within the stressful event of taking the test. And what you're trying to do as a student is you're trying to minimize your physiological responses to the various types of stresses that might be experienced within the stressful event. So you're able to maintain the correct, the correct level of arousal so that you can recall and recollect correctly. Once again, that's the key. The key here is optimal performance is going to be the balance between alarm response to stress versus full total relaxation. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to balance out the physiological responses that are taking place because everything that's going to take place within this response is going to be based off of my physiological responses to alarm or or to relaxation. I need to balance those two things out. By balancing those two things out, I'm going to be able to optimally perform. And you're going to be able to optimally perform predominantly by cognitively establishing my arousal set point. That is, what things am I going to see as being stress and what things am I going to see as not being stress? And this is where we have to remember is that we can think ourselves into a stressful event or we can think ourselves out of a stressful event. That's part of that coping mechanisms, the teaching of the relaxations, where if we happen to be at the free throw line trying to make two free throws, going through a rhythmic response once we get the ball, understand we have only so many seconds to shoot, but still understanding that, okay, I have so many seconds to shoot, deep breath, center myself, control my quote-unquote thinking, and by control by controlling my quote-unquote thinking, I'm able to control that crosstalk between frontal cortex, limbic system, hypothalamus, so that I get the correct muscle coordination necessary to execute and to make the free throw. If I am the pitcher on the mound in baseball, being able to control myself, center myself, understand, okay, I only have 20, maybe 30 seconds from one pitch to the next pitch, at least nowadays with the way in which the rules have been established. Gather myself, the quotes around the gathering. Understand, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing. Control the thinking, get the thinking out. One of the things that we talk about a lot of times within athletics and within responsive, reactive activities is that thinking is the worst thing you can do because if I'm thinking, I'm having various other stresses coming into play in terms of responsiveness. 
if I'm the pitcher on the mound and I'm having a bad day and it feels like I can't get anybody out. What I have to do is I have to basically take a very brief timeout. I have to recollect my thoughts and get all of those thoughts out because if all of those thoughts are there, even if I'm not paying attention to them, it's going to increase the crosstalk between those areas within the brain. That's going to impact how well can I put my arm in the correct arm slot in order to throw the pitch I want to throw, which will either lead to me continuing to have a bad day or worse, me injuring myself and possibly ruining the career that I have established or I'm hoping to establish. For the hitter, this is where you have to kind of take a step back. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of this. There's a lot of that all going on within the environment. And I need to somehow, quote unquote, block it out. The way in which I can block it out is by doing some of that relaxation techniques. But once again, I don't want to be so relaxed that I cannot respond to the pitch. So when we look at this idea of stress response, what we're really talking about is we're talking about How aroused am I going to get to a stimulus? I want to have arousal. Arousal is good because arousal is going to allow me to respond. The response I have to the stimulus is going to be determined by how aroused I am to that stimulus. How much alarm do I have versus how much relaxation do I have? How much fight or flight is taking place within my body at that point in time? The more fight or flight I have at that point in time, the more alarm I have to a stimulus, the poorer my performance will be. The more relaxation I have to a stimulus, the poorer my performance will be. We have to have this balance point between alarm and relaxation. And the only way to establish that balance point between alarm and relaxation is to put ourselves into the situations multiple, 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 multiple times, attempting to have very similar outputs to what is expected of us in all situations and comparing what do we do in the stressful environment relative to what was expected us to do in that stressful environment. Going back and looking at how did our performance change And what can I do in order to make sure that my performance stays where it should be? One of the very easy measurements to determine if my level of arousal is too high is to look at my heart rate. Because heart rate is going to indicate, generally speaking, my overall level of arousal. Where when I have excessive amounts of alarm because of the impact that epinephrine and norepinephrine have on the function of my heart, I'm going to have an elevated heart rate. And having that elevated heart rate is going to reduce my ability to optimally perform because it's going to change the way in which the muscles will function, because it's going to change the way in which my breathing is going to function. It's going to change the way in which metabolites indicating fatigue will be available. When I have too much stress, when I have too much alarm, I fatigue sooner. Fatigue is a stress and will disrupt optimal performance because it simply becomes another thing we have to take into account when we're attempting to do whatever we need to do. So what is the take-home message here? What do we need to remember as it relates to responding to stress? We can't avoid stress. 
That is the biggest take-home message. The only way to completely avoid stress is to not get out of bed, to have fluid intravenously administered, to have food pumped into our body, to not have any type of stressful event taking place physiologically, physically, or cognitively. But even then, we still have stress. Because we will constantly have stress, what we have to do is we have to learn behaviors to minimize our cognitive play in that stress response so that we can have the appropriate response to the stress and the stressful event that contains the stresses to be able to maintain homeostasis, to be able to maintain optimal performance. Which goes back to using that quote from the Happy Healer movie. You have to go to your happy place. You have to put yourself in a cognitive state that minimizes some stresses to allow you to focus on the most, the quotes around that, important of the stresses that you have to face at any point in time. If it's with the student or with the athlete, that stress event tends to be a combination of internalized and externalized expectations. And that internalized and externalized expectations leads to the response surrounding success and what we view as being success. And this is where we have to go back and look at what John Wooden placed in terms of his pyramid of success as the definition of success, which I really like, which is success is the peace of mind that you come knowing that you did what you could do to the best of your ability. And I'm paraphrasing that. If I understand that I did the best that I could do, then I automatically reduce both the internalized and externalized stress, both the internalized and externalized stress that is there relating to my performance. If I cannot get rid of the stresses, I end up having excessive levels of resistance and excessive levels of exhaustion. And this is where I start to, with too much stress and too much arousal, have a detriment to my health and a detriment to my overall optimal level of performance. This is where physiologically I'll start having uh, chronically elevated heart rates, chronically elevated respiration rates. I may start complaining about muscle pain, quick fatigue, headaches migraines. I may have constant or continuous state of kind of feeling sick. All of that is from my my inability to get out of alarm. And so once again, we go back to that take-home message. If I need to function optimally, I have to have the correct state of arousal. And the only way to have the correct state of arousal is to find a balance point between a stress response and a relaxation response, an alarm response and a relaxation response. What is going to trigger my fight or flight? What is going to trigger my sense of ease? And the only way to do that is to put myself in stressful situations and teach myself how to survive those stressful situations so that I'm able to adapt appropriately so that the stressful situation no longer contains the same stress. And when that stressful situation no longer contains the same stress, I'm able to have optimum performance because I see the stress, but I do not respond to the stress as if it is a stress because I know how to respond. Well, thanks for joining us today. 
Hopefully you got a little bit out of the discussion here on stress and arousal and stress response. There's a passage in the Substack that was published uh, a little bit earlier than the podcast release here that is worth reading if you haven't already read it. Please make sure that if you're liking what we're putting out there to go ahead and click a like and subscribe if you haven't already done so. Please feel free and we would love if you would go ahead and share what we're putting out with all of your friends and family. 